The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into Stephen King's epic The Dark Tower. This podcast is dedicated to discussion and analysis of The Dark Tower, a seven-book series written by the prolific American story slinger Stephen King. Say thank you, Sai. Susanna's arms finished straight out before her. For a moment, she looked like an impresario who had just introduced the featured act. Then they dropped and crossed, seizing two more dishes. She flung them, dipped again, and flung the third set. The first two were still quivering when the last two bit into the side of the barn, one high and one low. For a moment, there was utter silence in the Jefferson's yard. Not even a bird called. The eight plates ran in a perfectly straight line from throat of the chalked figure to what would have been its upper midsection. They were all two and a half to three inches apart, descending like buttons on a shirt. And she had thrown all eight in no more than three seconds. Fellow travelers on the path of the beam, Derek and Steve are at it again. Wheel of Ka, episode nine, nine. second half of Wolves of the Kala. Mm. Oh, I'm really <laughs> into this. I can't wait to talk about it. Steve, man, how you feeling, brother? Good, good. I'm I, I'm a little tired. It's been a crazy week. You know, I'm I'm bouncing back and forth as a freelance worker again, but doing really well. I'm excited to talk about this. It's been a little while. The second half of this book is weird. It is so strange. It is so Stephen King. Uh, and I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about it, too. Yeah, I've got pretty good. I've got a ton, a ton, ton, ton to say about this book. And I think now at our ninth episode about the Dark Tower, we Mm. pretty much know how this is going to go. Fellow travelers on the path of the beam that have been doing this adventure with us. We're going to talk everything about this book. Relatively loose format. I have a lot. I mean, a (laughs) lot of notes on this. I may not be able to get to everything that I wanted to uh you know, talk about, but But we're going to get to a lot. Same basic questions we've started with every time we've reread one of these, our Mm -hmm. second time through Wolves of the Kala. Steve, how do you think this book holds up? Are you enjoying the series? Give me your just quick reaction to it. Yeah, again, I think the second time around, I'm enjoying this book much more than I did the first time because I've already accepted the world that we're in and the way that time bends and how we shift. So I'm no longer taking up brain space trying to figure out what the fuck that all is. It makes a lot more sense. And in fact, I found myself being even more excited for the Todash moments and Eddie going back to New York because I, I knew what was going to happen. But you miss a lot of minute details that King puts in there and I forgot all the connections with some of the books, you know, in 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 in, in the in Towers bookshop and things like that. So I, I'm much more excited this time around about this one. Yeah, definitely. You know, when I finished Wolves the first time, the one thing that I was really scratching my head on that I'm like, this feels weird. This feels like it sticks out was that we are now at the point where Stephen King has written himself into the own no- his mm, own novels. Right. We have had two references to Stephen King's books. We have a character in Callahan, Per Callahan, pick up the book that's written about himself, Mm. reading the book that he is in. And I really, the first time around, I was like, 
this doesn't feel right. It feels a little off. It doesn't feel copacetic. It feels super meta. It feels, it almost felt the word I would describe was a form of both narcissism and solipsism. I remember when we first had the conversation about that, that you, you really felt uncomfortable, not very good about it. I didn't, I didn't mind it so much at first. Um, I, I enjoy it much more actually the second time around. It makes a whole lot more sense. Uh, but I do remember you being pretty fervent about not not enjoying that part Which is of the book. Interesting. Second time around, and I really wanted to approach this aspect of the story with an open mind mm-hmm. and be like, let me really just see how I react to it. Don't come with the judgments that I had the first time, which I judged harshly. I'm like, mm-hmm. uh, authors should not write themselves into their own book unless they're self-obsessed. They think they're so fucking special that they should be a character. (laughs) Their book should be in their book. Yeah. The second time around, I had the polar opposite reaction. In fact, it makes sense. As we understand that, I think one of the like main takeaways at the end of this book, that storytelling is the fabric that ties the tower together. That the tower itself relies upon narratives, narratives that people tell each other, whether that is... We can't fight against the wolves because we're just farmers. Mm-hmm. Whether those are narratives like I am a gunslinger from the line of Arthur Eld or narratives of yourself like I am a priest or I am an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. That the tower thrives on these narratives. And at all the different metaphoric layers of this tower, we have different layers of reality. And all realities are happening simultaneously. So, of course, there's a world in the dark tower where everyone's story is just somebody else's story. Right. Right. I don't know if that made any sense. Oh, I absolutely did. And I I really felt, I'm like, okay, I'm really into where it's going now. Sure. This is a story about a story, 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 you know, and it just keeps going layer after layer after layer. Yeah. And I, I think it's, I think that's what makes it the story interesting because the dark tower, I mean, it's just a quest. It's just another night's quest. There's nothing original, I would say, about the story itself, but it pulls from every narrative that we know in, in, in modern times. I mean, Harry Potter is referenced in this book. You know, the Wizard of Oz we've had in this book. Different narratives that have changed our culture in our reality that we live in are referenced in this book, really because it's it's authors that Stephen King really admires, which I think is interesting. I mean, imagine... Like, I, you know, he's super into Harry Potter. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, he loves Harry Potter. Yeah, which you figure because there are literal golden snitches right. in this. And he's he, when he talks, when he has interviews, he like gushes about J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter. And I just, the fact that he references it in this book, I remember the first time being like, oh, that's so clever. That's so wonderful. You know, and it, it, it made me want to continue with the story because there are things that we can latch on to from our reality and kind of suspend our disbelief to to imagine Roland's reality. Totally. And the fact that the wolves dress like Doctor Doom, so you have a Marvel reference, right. wield lightsabers, actual lightsabers, <laughs> with a Star Wars reference, yep. and then throw golden sneeches as these Grenados, right. a Harry Potter reference. So we have three of like the largest storytelling um, you know, commercial empires, for lack of a better term. Oh, certainly. In the last 50 plus years Mm -hmm. of American storytelling, referenced in this by America's most successful commercial writer, 
in America's history, I think creates this sort of um, interesting symbolic circle mm-hmm. where all of these things are informing each other and all of these things are blending. And the closer they get to the tower, the closer it gets all fucking 19, man. Yeah, and it's interesting too. I mean, Eddie, there's a moment later in the book where they're looking at one of the Sneetches, which again, a golden snitch for, you know, I just love it. He calls them Sneetches. Yeah. It's great. But Eddie's looking at them and it says, you know, the North Central Positronics, it says, you know, the Harry Potter model. And he asks, I mean, do, do, do you know who Harry Potter is? I think Jake asks him. He goes, no, but I think I think he's one of those Marvel comic books that comes out in like 1990 or 1995. You know, and it's, it's just, I really, there's a nostalgia to that that I really enjoy. It's part of the reason I love things like Stranger Things, you know, because of the nostalgia of it and because it's a, a fucking great story. Oh, yeah. Big question here for you. I know you're just starting out. Here we go. Does Stephen, or at this point in time, are they called golden sneeches and lightsabers because the wolves are using and utilizing them? Or do the wolves use and utilize them because of the stories that are being told? Mm. In other words, if this is a, like, storytelling circle where this is the glue that, that... keeps the beams which hold the tower in place, which keeps the multiverse spinning. What really comes first? That's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I, it's hard for me to see past it as a nod to something that, that Stephen King likes or that inspires him. You broke my brain there for a second. <laughs> it just it just popped no, into my no, head. It absolutely. broke my brain I mean, too. I don't I don't know. My my initial response because I'm a bit of a cynic with things like this is like no, it's just it's a reference to things that he loves that happen to fit the narrative of this story because again, all the layers of the tower were essentially telling the same story. So he's able to nod, you know, his head in reference to these people that he really respects. That's but again, all things serve the tower, all things serve the beam. I think it's probably both ways. You know what, Derek? It's one way in one reality and one way in another. There's my really safe (laughs) middle road answer. (laughs) Well, I will give you a little bit of a a, a riddle from directly from the, the text here that we now have confirmation that at least in Roland's mind, a certain antagonist has come up in his life in multiple forms and facets. And this is, uh, quote, It was Walter he was thinking of, the man in black, who had also left him the cookies called Keebler's. Walter was Flag, and Flag was Martin, and Martin, was he Merlin? The old rogue wizard of legend? On that subject, Roland remained unsure. Mm. And we see now that Flag, Walter, and Martin have become one person. Right, right. And that's been confirmed now. Yes. I mean, and this is something that we know having read the whole series. But yeah, now it's confirmed. Also, can we talk about how the man in black leaves Roland fucking Keebler cookies like EL fudges? <laughs> what? Absolutely. It's hilarious. Well, that's a detail I missed, dude. Yeah. That is a detail <laughs> that I missed 
That's hysterical. Yeah. I used to eat the shit out of those as a kid. Yeah. Well, he, he leaves Eddie the, the, he leaves him the cookies, I think, in the end of Wizard and Glass. Oh, right. And he leaves the cookies after they leave the, uh, the Emerald Palace. I'm a fraud, everyone. I'm a fraud. <laughs> it's my favorite book, and I missed it. Oh, I'm well, a listen, fraud. dude. There's so much to The Dark Tower. <laughs> no, it's true. No judgment whatsoever. <laughs> But the reason I point that out, because one, we now know that these this has been the same person in just dis- different forms and facets. Right. And two, the question is, who came first? What came first? Was it first Merlin? Was it first Flag? Was it first Walter? Was it first Martin? And the idea Does it is, even matter? Well, that's a very good question. Like, does it, in this kind of multiverse... Does it matter what or who came first? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> well, let's think this out. Sure. If we want to understand what King is saying about storytelling, I think it makes sense when he is the author. So in theory, just run with me because I don't know if this is going to make sense at all. My shoes are on. If in theory, everything comes from King because he's the author, mm-hmm. but everything that he is drawing upon is directly coming from other things. Right. From other books he's written, other pop culture. Mm -hmm. So he's saying in one hand, it doesn't all actually come from me. I'm just channeling things from other places. Right. And making these references. And I'm going to draw attention to these references to say that, hey, like you said, there's really, there's very little originality. All I'm doing is putting the puzzle pieces together and that's all I am is channeling these other things. So maybe what what this is saying, the meta aspect of this book, what it's saying about the tower is that the tower always is and always was. And all we can do is just pick little pieces from it and gain our little glimpse of understanding. Yeah, and feed into it. And I think I think what's interesting about that is that, you know, how whenever, I mean, you're a musician, when when a song is written, you know, people say that when that inspiration comes, sometimes it's something I'm not thinking about. It's an idea that just comes to me. And that, that reminds me, it's like, oh, well, maybe that comes from the tower. And that maybe this story is coming from the tower and, and in, a, in, a, in a strange way, Stephen King sees maybe the inspiration or his ability as a writer is coming from the tower, whatever the fuck that might be to him. And he's just the messenger. Right. And I think that's part of what we're seeing now in this book with how meta it gets, which is why I like it so much more. Yeah, and I don't, you know, as it was coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking, is that, is that like a is that a negative train of thought? But I don't think it is. I think it. I think, like you said, the Dark Tower is, was, and always will be, and that that's just the way it is. That's that's where the power comes from. Yeah. And ultimately, all things, even the beams, serve the tower. So right. why the fuck do we think Stephen King or us or even any are any different? Right. Yeah. I think we kind of hit what the tower is in this yep. already. 100%. In that, um, so we know how we're feeling. We know how the tower is. We've we've started a lot of these pods too with a discussion of Ka. Do you have anything to say about Ka as a theme in this book? I don't too much. I felt a little more prescient in uh, Wizard and Glass. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think I think Kaz riddled all through this. I Correct mean, me if I'm wrong then. No, I don't think you're wrong. That's the thing. I, it's not mentioned as much in this book, but I think Ka is working hardest in this book so far. Because this is the first time we're really getting into this multiverse. We're really understanding that Ka affects all things. That maybe Ka and the Tower are one in the same. I don't know. That's... 
that's a theory I'm starting to come to and I'm not ready to unpack yet. But I think Ka in this, it, it, it's revealing itself as the puppet master to me. I mean, all these things are orchestrated, and yet one thing that we wanted to hit on is the fact that there's a lot of denial of reality happening in these situations. You know, the, 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 the Kala, for all intents and purposes, is a, a distraction. Mm -hmm. It's a distraction at the, end of, at the end of the day. They have to help the Kala because they're knights. They're sworn to it, but really... And that's Ka, I think, working its way to slow rolling down. Because up until this point, man, they're moving. And they're moving pretty quick. And now there's, there are all these obstacles, and then we get into this subject of denial. Yeah, okay. Interesting thought. Here's how I look at the Kala as relation to our Katet and the heroes. You call it a bit of a distraction. But to me... Just kind of reflecting where these heroes are at. They come together. They like fate crashes them together through book two and three. They have to deal with Roland's diminished hand, his him and Jake's almost like mental paradox of insanity. And then they get thrown into this hostile environment of Lud. And then ultimately the reward for surviving that is a psychotic train. At the end of that, we as the, you know, the listeners of this story, including the content, have to go into Roland's past because at some point we have to reconcile with the monster he's become and understand right. him. Otherwise, we can't move forward rooting for him. Right, correct. So we have to get we have to understand where he came from to, to be there. Now that we have these knights on this quest, on their way to the quest, they have to save as many fucking people as they can. Oh, sure. To me, it's not necessarily a, a distraction. In a few ways. One, because they never lose sight on the big picture, mm -hmm. even when they almost do, which is time is working differently in this world and the world where the rose, and they realize that saving the Kala is a part of trying to get them a little step closer to saving the rose. They even take time out of their plans to protect the Kala to go into the past, in particular Eddie, and come up with a plan that is actually executed pretty well mm -hmm. to try to save Calvin Tower from selling the rose to um, Enrico Balazar and the Sombra Corporation. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was it, uh, that was Eddie the Diplomat. And also, I think, of all of the tests we've seen the content go through and how much they've passed, the Wolves is the first test of them as a unit. Sure. Sure. Yeah. They, I don't disagree. They needed that, that to work together to see that they could work together. And th the fact that they could defend against these murderous fucking robots. I think it was more important for Jake, Eddie, and Susanna. Because Roland does mention a few times how this is, this is kind of in the way. Like, we need to get this done. We need to get it done fast because we need to get back to the tower because time is slipping. So I guess that's more what I mean by a distraction. I don't, that's fair. I don't think it's negative. I mean, obviously, yes, they have to save as many people as possible. That is their duty. But the Kala, it time does... I, I do feel that through the book, not in a bad way, but the time does move a little slower in the Kala. People talk a little slower. Like, I, I, it remind you know what I mean? Like, during when they're passing the feather around and we're talking, I don't imagine that those conversations went very quickly. 
Mm, don't suppose they did. You know what I mean? I just and, I, and so I feel like the, because we're gonna get to this battle, where I mean, the cow is lucky if it's around any longer. So I don't mean it as a negative thing, but I do I get think you. in the quest it kind of gets in the way. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, the 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 overall larger quest. I, I yeah. You're, yes. You're, you're right. It yeah. does. But it also gives them two useful things that they need to complete the quest. One, Black 13, mm-hmm. and two, a new member of the Cotet in Pair Callahan, who ends the book as a member of their Cotet. Right. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about either of those two new additions, uh, the Black 13 or Pair Callahan? Yeah, let's talk about Black 13. Let us talk about Black 13. So this is one of the wizard's class. It's the most dangerous one. Uh, it's the one that can transport you in and out of reality, in and out of time. I'm, I'm sure at some point in time it could probably raise the dead because those things normally fucking do that. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 terrifying. It's really, really gross. Yeah, I mean, it's this is... I really like when Stephen King adds his horror to this quest. And, and, and they, this is one of the times where anytime there's a passage about Black 13 or a chapter, I completely distrust it. None of, none of the, even though the toad ash is interesting, it never feels right when I'm reading it. It never completely feels good or, or complete. I always feel uneven. I feel like I have vertigo when I read those chapters. I like, I, I think I put this in the notes, but I didn't have a direct quote here is that it's the eye of the crimson King. Oh Yeah. It is, I don't remember the exact quote. It, it, it's also clear to me that Walter or Martin or Flag uses Black 13 to draw Callahan into yes. the way station. It's, it's Sauron's eye. Yeah. It is this, it's concentrated evil into a glass ball. Right. And if, and unlike in, you know, Lord of the Rings where they're like, you can't touch it. You can't use it. Oh, this you can touch and use. And they have to find a way to use it without succumbing to its ultimate evil. <sighs> that's that's rough. <laughs> I mean, Roland almost like goes mad just sitting with it open. Yeah. Uh, they can't even be near it. It's randomly, even when it's asleep, sending them Todash, mm-hmm. which is this bizarre, which we talked about in our last episode, a bizarre space in between worlds with yeah. living and dead. Yeah. So there's this, there's this, this, like ultimate evil object. And we now get a sense in this book of truly what or who the Crimson King is. Mm -hmm. And he is a agent trying to destroy the tower. And the Crimson King has his henchmen, like any evil agent. He's got the low men and he's got the vampires in particular in this book. Right. And we learn about those primarily through Callahan's backstory. And I think Callahan and Black 13, he is the one that brings Black 13 to the Kala. I think he is, of the new characters, I think one of the more interesting characters of the series. Oh, definitely. There's more of a focus on him than some of the other quote-unquote side characters. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, what makes this... A lot of things make the Dark Tower great, but one of the things that makes the the Dark Tower great are the interesting characters. Mm -hmm. And Stephen King has done a great job bringing the character Callahan in. And I think also Callahan thematically represents what I think this entire book is about. 
And this entire book is about facing up to your problems. Mm-hmm. Finally looking at the problem and saying, I'm going to do something about it. Whether it's the quartet all knowing and hiding that Susanna is pregnant with a demon child and being possessed by this other personality named Mia. Right. Whether it's the Calif folk who have been running and hiding from the wolves when they should be standing and fighting, in particular considering that their women are expert marks people, <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> like, right. They have weapons and warriors to use, but they've never even thought about using them. Right. And then with with Callahan and his story, which is facing his alcoholism mm-hmm. and facing the alienation that he has felt felt and and faced in the failures with Barlow, and finally trying to make a true sacrifice play, which is when he jumps out of the window right. when he is confronted by the low men. I want to put in the sort of middle of his story a quote. It's a little lengthy about okay. Callahan. Now, this is when Callahan returns to New York. And when he returns to New York, it is his friend has been assaulted by the Hitler brothers who are looking for him. And he has been um, uh, almost assaulted by uh, his friend's twin sister, who is so upset that her brother is dying. And here comes this vagabond, the person that her brother spent his life, in her view, squandered his life trying to help and save, here to see him. And he's just like, wow, um, what do I do now? Now that my friend is dying, now that uh, this is happening, his friend was um, Rowan McGarter, who is in room 557, which if you add up, 19. The room begins filling up with nurses. There's a doctor with American face yelling for the patient's chart. And pretty soon Rowan's twin sister will be back, this time possibly breathing fire. Callahan decides it's time to blow this pop shop and the greater pop shop that is New York City. The low men are still interested in him, it seems. Very interested indeed. And if they have a base of operations, it's probably right here in Fun City, USA. Consequently, a return to the West Coast would probably be an excellent idea. He can't afford another plane ticket, but he has enough cash to ride the big gray dog. Won't be for the first time either. Another trip west, why not? He can see himself with absolute clarity, the man in seat 29C, a fresh unopened pack of cigarettes in his shirt pocket, a fresh unopened bottle of early times in a paper bag, the new John D. Mc. Donald novel, also a fresh and op- also fresh and opened lying on his lap. Maybe he'll be on the far side of the Hudson, um, riding through Fort Lee, deep in chapter one, and nipping his second drink before they finally turn off all the machines in room 557, and his old friend goes out into the darkness and toward whatever waits for him there. End quote. Now, the reason I highlighted that one, and I know it's a long, lengthy one, he is confronted with a problem. The problem is, A, the lone men are still out to get him. And worse, someone he loves is dying and died to protect him. What is his response? And he has another character, Rowan's twin sister, very similar name to Roland, by the way. Mm. Twin sister, pretty much saying, like, it's your fault. You're not off the hook. And what does he want to do? Grab a bottle, a book, a pack of smokes and hit the hobo highway and just go travel through the multiverse as he's been. 
he fundamentally wants to run. Mm-hmm. He, his only response is to run and to get away. He doesn't immediately, but he eventually he does. He runs away. He has his experience with the Hitler boys who almost kill him. Mm-hmm. And in that experience, he gets inexplicably saved, presumably by Calvin Tower, but we don't know that. Now, let's flash forward a little bit with Callahan's story. If you'll permit yeah, me no, a little of bit of a longer, Please. a longer point here. And then we flash forward. He ends up setting up in another institution similar to home. Mm -hmm. They end up getting a grant. They're greedy for the money. They go, and it turns out the Loman and the vampires, they finally have got him. Mm -hmm. And when they have finally got him, he makes his first true sacrifice play and kills himself also realizing if he jumps out of the window, he won't die from vampire AIDS, which we can all admit. That's yeah. got to be a shitty way to go. Yeah, absolutely. Better to jump out the window than get <laughs> vampire AIDS. <laughs> he gets drawn into Roland's way station in book one, and he meets Walter there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Walter and him have this really interesting conversation. Walter is antagonistic. He's very humorous. He's also very cryptic. And then at one point... Um, Callahan gets to Walter by suggesting that Roland may be above Ka. And Walter's offended by this. And Walter says it's blasphemy, that nobody's above Ka. Mm. Right? And so in this is like Callahan's really confused. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He says that maybe Roland's not subject to these things. Walter calls him blasphemous. And Walter says that everyone serves Ka and the Crimson King. Right. And this is another reference of the Crimson King. Right. And then he tells him that the top level of the tower is empty. Mm. There's nothing at the top level. Callahan immediately, without hesitation, says that he's wrong and that there is a God who watches and judges everything. And it's never a resolved conversation. The debate never comes to who's right. Is the top level of the tower empty? Is there a God? But what's clear in that is that Callahan has had a return to faith. Mm -hmm. And what does he do next? He builds his church. He ends up preaching the man Jesus. And I think faith, faith not necessarily in the institutions, because even Callahan admits that this his church is not consecrated. It's not true Catholicism. But faith in oneself, a belief in something higher than yourself— the idea that the tower matters and there's something at the top level is the motivation that helps Callahan finally confront his alcoholism, his cowardness, mm-hmm. finally being able to embrace the strangeness and put down a tent pole and actually start to do something good. And it's Callahan who, ups, who in the very beginning of the book first starts to sway the town when Tian Jaffers is trying to say, let's fight the wolves and he's losing, it's Callahan who steps up. It's Callahan who's saying enough is enough. Mm-hmm. It's Callahan who's rallying everyone, who brings the gunslingers in, who helps the Caliph face the problems because Callahan's faced the deepest, darkest holes himself right. and he's come out the other side. And I think faith in yourself, faith in something, a pragmatic form of faith that helps you in this world is the big sort of thematic glue of the book. Well, you know, Callahan's the classic, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. I mean, that's the way he's lived. You know what's funny? Do you know who first said that? No. Frederick Nietzsche. Oh, really? 
one of the world's first and most famous atheists. <laughs> but go on. No, 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 that was it. I just, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think there's a reason why Cal and Callahan, there's a, there's a connection there between their names. I do find it. I think King must have a particular connection to Callahan, you know, to reintroduce, you know, we get bits and pieces of Stephen King's universe throughout these books, but this is the first time where he's really introducing a character that's already been in this, in his own universe in the dark tower as a main player. And I think that's really interesting. I think it fits thematically really, really well. Absolutely. And yeah. he's also the first character who learns that he is also a character in a Stephen King book at right. the very end. Yeah. He gets to see the book that describes him, and he's just like, I went through this, I told no one this, how is this in this book? And that's when he completely gives up on reality, and is just like, this is, reality's fucked. This is, I don't even know what's happening now. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, well, so any last thoughts on Callahan? Should we move on to the quartet? Yeah. Want to talk about them? Second half of the book, man. Let me uh, actually let me save that question for. Let me shelve that question. Okay. Let's first start with Jake. How do you think Jake fares in this book? So Jake is really interesting. I mean, he's he's like the Katet spy in this book. I mean, he's the one that finds out that Benny the Elder is a traitor with Andy, and I have it written down here uh, with. Uh, Finley Ote oh, what's his name? Finley Otega. Yes, in the Dogen. And so, and then that really interesting connection with the book in Calvin Tower when, when Eddie goes back. But I think Jake is a is a main player here. I mean, Jake, Jake watches a friend die. That's fucking hard. He's like 11 years old. He doesn't watch a friend die. No, he doesn't he watch, watch a friend get, get killed. Get exploded. Yeah, too. I mean, and that's just... And not his only friend we ever see yeah. in the entire series. That's a kid. And that's the thing. It's the, it's the only person that Jake gets to be his true self as a child with the whole time. And, you know, I think he's crafty, man. He figures out relatively quickly. Something's not right with Andy. Something's not right with Benny's dad. Benny's dad's always going out late at night, taking these long trips. And he's the one that sneaks out. You know, he's like, Roland, I want to, I want to stay. Uh, at the ranch, but this time I, I want to bring the gun. The first couple times I don't want to. I need to gain their trust. I need. He, he, I mean, he, the kid's smart. He's a fucking spy, dude. He's a little spy, and he's a full-on psychic as well. Oh yeah, his powers with the touch with the are really strong. Unbelievable. I forgot that it was Jake using the touch on Andy, where he learned that when Andy the robot's eyes flash blue, he's laughing. Yep. And that every time you see him do that, he's just mocking the people. Yeah. But there's something interesting about that that whole sort of side story between Benny the Elder, Benny the Younger, Andy, and Jake. Mm -hmm. One, the fact that you can use psychic powers on a robot, anything that thinks the touch could connect, is an interesting concept. And as far as I'm aware, a pretty unique one for psychic powers in a sci-fi story. Oh, sure. I don't think there's any any kind of mind control of, of machines and mind reading of yeah. machines, which makes you stop to think what was North central positronics actually up to? Yeah. Are they sentient in some way? Like, I mean, we, we, we get this with Blaine. I mean, there's a piece of Blaine that we think, I mean, he's psychotic. This can't just be a CPU. Yeah. If the train can go insane, 
so can a robot get vengeful and sarcastic and right. mocking. Right. And I guess because they've evolved these robots to this extent, then yes, Jake can actually use his psychic powers. Um, I totally agree. The His scene in the Dogen, mm. the way that he gunslingers up. Yeah. Even it's a when, badass. Even when the content decides around the halfway point, no more secrets, no more lies. Mm -hmm. When, you know, Roland's like, Jake, what are you up to? He's just like, I don't know yet. Roland's just like, you know what? He's he's earned his threads here. I'm going to yeah. give him a thread. I'm going to let him pull the rope and see where it goes. He'll tell me when he's ready. I mean, it's the least Roland could do for Jake. Of also all of the characters, I think he has the biggest moral conflict. Oh, sure. In this, in that... Mm -hmm. He becomes friends with Benny the Younger. Mm -hmm. Benny the Elder is a traitor. And he really deliberates on, if I bring his father to justice, I condemn my friend. And he truly doesn't know the right thing to do. Right. And he waits until he gets all of the information, until there's no if, ands, or buts. And at the end, he remembers the face of his father. It's a lot like Roland. Absolutely. I think Jake comes a long way in this story. Let us move on to Eddie Dean. Oh, Mr. Dean. Um, well, I think this is, you know, Eddie, I talked way back when we first met Eddie that I thought that his character arc is the most consistent. He, he just consistently grows and gets better and better and better. And I'm going to stick with that because I think in, in, well, I mean, the scene where he, where they go through the door, he goes through the door and, you know, knocks out Andalini and, uh, and the other, I, forget, I always forget what the other guy's name is. It doesn't matter. Right. The and other gangster. Yeah. And he's with Calvin tower and convincing him not to sell the lot to that corporation, to the somber corporation, to not to sell it to the Tet corporation, which I love. He's starting to understand that his wit, it doesn't have to be defensive. It doesn't always have to be a joke. In fact, it can be used for good. It can be used for persuasion. And he always remembers the only one compliment that Harry gives, uh, Henry gives him. No. Yeah, Henry. Henry, yeah, yeah you right. got it right. Henry. Harry, oh my God. Yeah. It, the, he always remembers the one time where Henry stood up for him, stood up for him and said, hey, look, my, my little brother could essentially talk his way out of any situation, convince anyone of anything. He is a charismatic person. And this time he uses it for good and he handles the situation it, with Calvin Tower really well. There's not a lot of bloodshed. You know, he convinces Andalini to go back to his boss and, and tell him what's, look, you know what? It's not going to get sold to you. Doesn't matter. This is what's happening now. Calms Calvin Tower down, gets him to explain, has the weird little moment where he's got the book called the Dogen, and then it's really called the Hogan, and you have this really weird thing about, about expensive books and hoarders. It's just this little interesting scene. But Eddie, it's the first time I see Eddie as a diplomat and not just a wisecracking kid who can shoot a gun. Eddie's, Eddie's become, for all intents and purposes, he's grown into the man that he wanted to be. He's no longer a boy. He's no longer a kid anymore. He's taking responsibility. He's making smart choices. He's using his wit to his advantage. He's a dead shot. He's got so much confidence now. I mean, the shittiest thing he does is not tell his wife that she's pregnant with a demon. 
that's a, that's suspect too. Well, we'll we'll hold on to that to when we get to Susanna. Yeah, yeah. But that's the only that's the only time where I there's a little black mark on Eddie. But I think Eddie, he's just getting consistently better and better and better. Yeah, I really enjoyed when he is threatening the gangsters and he's just like, I'll come back here, I'll kill you, I'll kill your wives, I'll kill your family, I will kill your children. And then Calvin Tower looks at him and he's like, you know, you didn't really mean that. And then he's just like, well, I kind of look at them like wolves. Mm. So if you're married to a wolf, well, you're a wolf too. And if you have a wolf pup, well, that's going to grow up to be a wolf. So I don't really look at it as murder. I look at it as putting down a pack of wild animals. Yeah, I mean, he's he really has become a gunslinger. That was but, very Roland. It was oh, expressed yeah. in an Eddie Dean way, yeah. but a Roland thought, you and, know? <laughs> and, you know, just, just Eddie's, there's a really sweet little part when he goes back to New York, at actual New York through the door, where he just like, he's like, I just, I kind of want to enjoy it for, for five seconds. It's not my reality anymore, but I really want to enjoy this. And it, it's just, it's good to see Eddie enjoy something, but be this really mature, kick ass gunslinger. Yeah, I think the scenes with him in Calvin Tower are fantastic. Oh, and also, I really I mean, do. He's another one who's trying to convince Roland look, I, I, I don't know exactly how I know this, but I know. And Roland's like, okay, great. We're going we're gonna to run with this. Like I, I, I have the sense also, I mean, I, you know, I, I scoured the book to try to find the words that pay, the, the grand pair says to Eddie and I can't find them. I, I, I don't know. Are they in there? The they words? There. What do you mean? Oh well, no. They no, they're not the 19 words that he says that he whispers. Okay, great. So it's not just me. Yeah. But presumably it's, they have antennas on their heads yeah. and they're robots and you can kill them by killing the antennas right. in 19 words. Right. So yeah, I I mean again Eddie Eddie consistently surprises me, and I I love him I really do I love him I love him he's he's a great character I do think there is less Eddie in this book compared to um, you know books two and three which oh, are definitely. very Eddie heavy yeah sure. I sure. do think there's a lot more of Jake Pear and obviously Roland mm -hmm. um, Pear Callahan that is. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I totally agree. I think Eddie has really grown into his own as a gunslinger. I think that he has become a very confident man. I think he has earned the respect of Roland. And I think of all of the members of content, there's only one who doesn't really get the respect to make decisions on their own. And that would be Susanna. Mm -hmm. And I do think... As in a lot of other of these uh, books, in particular, so I think in um, I think in the drawing of the three, it's pretty even in terms of the Eddie and the Detta Odetta Holmes. Yeah, I think in the Wastelands, Susanna gets the short end of the stick. Absolutely. I think in Wolves, Susanna gets the shortest of the shortest of the short ends of the sticks in terms of the characters. Yeah, I mean, well, yes. I, yes, I would agree with that statement. I mean, she does... She is the baddest warrior of all of them in the bunch. I mean, with the pl with the plate throwing and, and, I mean, just... Yes. I mean, I'm not saying that that... Very true. As far as character goes, yes. She gets she gets the shortest end of the stick. I still think that she's the least developed character. And I, I mean, I, I still think King has dropped the ball with her in every sense of the word. Well, I, I think there's a few layers to it. 
One, a few things to point out. One, Eddie doesn't tell his wife that she might be pregnant with a demon child. Right. I'm married. You're married. Yeah, As that, married men, yo, dude, you fucked up big. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, that's not. That's your wife. She might be pregnant. You talk to your wife about right. that. Fuck what your din says. Yeah. And, you know, so I think that is like, yeah, your din's like a general, but your wife's your wife. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I don't necessarily, I, 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 I think it's a, a poor writing decision. It, absolutely. And I love Stephen King. This is not to insult him, but I think it's a poor one. The other decision is that Roland goes to Pear Callahan and says, hey, you know, your maid really knows a good bit about health. Do you think she might be able to, like, do something about this baby, you know? Yeah, he's trying to force abortion on her without, without her knowledge. And then Callahan says, absolutely not, under no stretch of the imagination, if you do that, I'll rally this town against you the way right. I rallied this town to you. And here you have two older male characters deciding whether the woman character is or isn't going to get an abortion. Yeah, that's, it's uncomfortable. It really, like the first time I went through the book, that didn't really ring out to me as bad as it was. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. The second time going through it, I'm like, hold on. Jake has earned enough respect with Roland to make decisions about whether he can bring this gun, whether he stays over yeah, there. Yeah, whether an 11-year-old can bring a gun to his friend's house. <laughs> yes. He uh, has, uh, uh, you know to break? <laughs> Eddie has a hunch and can go traveling through time and space to try to figure out an ad hoc plan to convince a book hoarder to sell him a piece of the multiverse that, by the way, if it goes, so goes all reality. And also she, you know, she, oh, but, you know, she's allowed to be a really great warrior and protect the Cotet better than most people do and get the Cotet out of all of these dangerous situations but she's not allowed to make a decision about the demon child that she's carrying. It's fucked up. That has to come and it's from, short and it's short sighted. Yeah. That has to come from these two male characters. Yeah. It's please. And that really was just like, Oh my God, the most pivotal scene for Susanna's character, which is whether or not she can or can't keep this baby. She's not even involved in, she's not even in, she doesn't even have a say. And that's just a level of agency robbing from a character who arguably, as you call it, the best warrior, Mm -hmm. should have earned the most agency at this Absolutely. point. Absolutely. She's proven herself time and, and it's the weird thing about King. Like she proves herself time and, and time again, that she's the most valuable member of the quartet until we have to get to something really heavy and emotional and life changing. Then she gets the short end of the stick. The very secret that almost drives a wedge in the quartet is the existence of Mia and the chap. I think it is the thing that drives the wedge. And, and it's like, hold on. The one person that you should ask about this, the first person that you should ask about it is Susanna. Absolutely. And it, I mean, because because they assume that it's not going to go well. Well, how, how do you, you can't assume that, especially with a person who's part of your quartet. They're supposed to be, the one thing that I don't understand is they're supposed to be sharing. They almost share thoughts. And that part of the quartet is not in this book. And that's a little inconsistency about the quartet. Is that they share thoughts between one another, but, but apparently not when it comes to a, a demon baby. Yeah, and I think the idea is that the existence of this demon baby is driving a wedge between the psychic connections because Susanna's psychology 
is fractured again. However, the decision to keep that from her and then all of, and all of the decisions about this potential demon baby being made by everyone but Susanna robs this character. And I think is the reason we can't see them sharing because there's, they've stopped sharing. Right. Right. You know, and I, I just think time and time again, you come down to the character, Susanna, this is now two books. This is the wastelands and wolves of the Kala where the thing that I'm just scratching my head is just like, hold on. Susanna needs to be able to do and say her own piece. Mm-hmm. She, and it's not that it's all bad. I don't no, want to, no. I don't want to sound like everything that Susanna does is, is bad, but we're she, talking about it in the context of, of being the, having the short end of the stick. Like we keep saying, I mean, it's true when it comes to character development, and the way that she moves through the story, she feels like an afterthought sometimes. Yep. Give her more to do and say in the actual emotional crux of the problems and and the dilemmas that they're happening. I mean, a telltale sign, Susanna decides that she wants to tell them about the chap. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I've got something I want to say. And this, the chapter ends. And we never yeah. get to even hear her voice no. say what she's going through. And it's, you know... <laughs> And also, you know, a white woman gets more attention than Susanna does. And it, it, it's one of her personalities. Mia is a more interesting character in this book than Susanna is. Because at least we know what Mia wants. Right. You know? And it's just like, like typical, like a white woman gets more attention. And it's, it, is, it is frustrating because Susanna could be so much more. And sometimes I feel like, why did King even introduce her? The foundation is there. The building blocks are there. It comes down to in these key moments, I honestly think where the other characters get agency, she gets denied it. Right. And that's a white man writing a a book with a, with a, with trying to make a strong female character and just doesn't get it. And just sometimes misses the mark. (laughs) And when he misses, he misses the, the, whether or not to abort the demon baby, between Roland and Callahan is the worst scene in the book, in my opinion. Absolutely. It was the point where I'm like, oh, come on. Like, why are, why is Susanna not in this scene? You know, like, if if Susanna goes to pair with Roland and says, hey, I really want to abort this baby. Can your nurse slash maid do this? Well, yeah, because then it's not Callahan's choice at all. It's and then her Ca- choice coming and then Ca- from her. And Callahan, it's consistent for Callahan to be like, no, sure, uh, because I'm, you know, I've seen all of this crazy multiverse stuff, but still, abortion is way too much. Killing right. vampires, okay, but abortion, not okay. I, anyway, let's move on. Sure, I think we made our point. We've talked about everyone. Uh, Roland, I saved Roland for last. We have to. Where do you think Roland's at? How are you feeling about Roland? Well, at the end of Wolves. This is General Roland, right? This is Roland in battle. We get to see Roland in his element. You know, we know he's great. We know he's a great warrior. We get to see him fight with one hand, essentially. We get to see him plan and structure the whole thing. I mean, he has been the manipulator of the situation from the very start. The very first time he had that feather in his hand, this plan was going to work. He withheld information until the right time. He gained trust. Sounded like a couple other 
characters in this book. He gained the town's trust. He did it in the right amount of time. He was smart about it. And then he fucking killed, I don't know what, like 40 of the wolves yeah. by himself. I think the, the end count, I think at one point they said was over 60, I think. Yeah, and, and if Roman I remember. killed at least a third of them. Uh, I mean, he's, it. just reading that, this is going to sound really odd, but in the context of this book, reading the killer Roland just kind of feels comfortable. It kind of feels like a, a nice broken in jacket. Like, ah, oh, we know this part of Roland. Um, I but, think that's absolutely fair. But on the opposite hand, I think we really see Roland the diplomat. I mean, he's made a lot of diplomatic choices when it comes to the people of the Kala. At the end of the day, he knew that no matter what they voted, no matter what they said, he was going to get this job done. But he thought it was important to include the community's voices about what they wanted to do. The community gets more agency than Susanna does. <laughs> Just to bring that back for a second. But... You know, I mean, the community gets to weigh in on how they want to be saved, if they want to be saved. Now, in the end, it's bullshit because Roland's going to do it anyway. But that mentality of, of gaining trust makes the process easier and is going to get less people in his content killed or harmed at all. Totally. Can I give you a quote? Yeah. This is a quote right before battle is happening with the wolves and in particular i thought it was interesting again it's a little long so i apologize in advance uh roland lay on his belly in the ditch now watching the wolves with one eye of imagination and one of in, in of one of intuition pardon me instead of those in his head the wolves were between the bluff and the hill riding full out with their cloaks streaming behind them they'd all dis dis disappear behind the hill for perhaps seven seconds if that was, they stayed bunched together and the leaders didn't start to pull ahead. If he had calculated their speed correctly, if he was right, he'd have five seconds when he could motion Jake and the others to come, or seven. If he was right, they do have those same five seconds to cross the road. If he was wrong, or if the others were slow, the wolves would either see the man in the ditch, the children in the road, or all of them. The distance would likely be too great to use their weapons, but that wouldn't matter much because the carefully crafted ambush would be blown. The smart thing would be to stay down and leave the kids to their fate. Hell, four kids caught on the path would make the wolves more sure than ever the rest of them were stranded further on in one of the old mines. Enough thinking, Court said in his head. If you mean to move, Maggot, this is your only chance. Roland shot up to his feet. You know, it's interesting, though. I mean, Roland's like, hey, if four kids go, I mean, it's better than all of them. This is the same Roland who killed three, a whole town, killed a whole town, <laughs> killed a kid to get one step closer. Now saying there are four kids. If I move now, I have a chance to save them, right. but I might blow the plan and says, I'd rather save the kids than save the plan. Right. And he thinks about it. He, he goes through the entire exercise. Hey, if I've calculated this wrong, I could blow the plan. Right. The kids there actually helps the plan in certain respects. They'll certainly all four die, but the plan would work better. He's like, if I'm going to do it, I got to do it. And he decides to intuitively do it to save the kids. Mm -hmm. The plan doesn't get blown. The kids do get saved. 
That is a very different Roland from book one. Oh, yeah. He has grown tremendously. Roland book one would let the kids die. Absolutely. For the sake of the ambush. No, yeah, and, and you know what's interesting? I mean, he even mentions a lot of times it's King commenting on how emotional Roland's become. But there are one or two pieces in this book where Roland even admits, like, my heart, basically my heart, my heart is less hard. Yeah. And I feel more. Like I've, I've come to love these people. And love is not a word that, you know, book one, book two, book three Roland would use. Yeah. One other quote after the battle. And this is about Roland's perspective. The sickness was coming now. The feeling of uselessness. The sense that he would fight this battle or battles like it over and over for eternity. Losing a finger to the lobstrosities here, perhaps an eye to a clever old witch there. And after each battle, he would sense the dark tower a little further away instead of a little closer. And all the time, the dry twist would work its way towards his heart. And it's interesting that after the battle, Roland feels this sickness and it is mentioned a few times, but King specifically quotes that sickness that after the battle, he feels further from the tower, that this is his fate to do this over and over, but never get closer to the tower, just more pain and more suffering. And I wonder if there's a meditation about cycles of violence here. Oh, I'm sure. The battle gets him further from the tower. Yeah, because, I mean, when Roland learns the most, he's not using his guns. And I do think that's telling. I do think there is something about Roland the diplomat that gets closer to the tower than Roland the warrior. I love that. Yeah, I think, I do think, I mean, if we look at the times where Roland has really been a human and not just a killing machine... His character grows, his plan moves forward, and he gets closer to the tower. And I do think that now that King is directly saying, you know, after you kill a bunch of people, even though you've saved a bunch of folks, the killing is never going to get you closer to the tower. It's only going to get you further away. And it's always going to make you sick. And then eventually that dry twist, that sickness would work its way directly into his heart. And he has said this meditation a few times in, I think it was in the drawing of the three. If I were to make my way to the tower, but become a monster, is it, has it been worth it? Right. You know, like, am I becoming a monster? He looks at his new friends in the wastelands and goes, you know, my deadly new friends, what have I done? But pluck them from their worlds Mm -hmm. and their home and put this quest into them you know, his love for Jake is deeply wrapped with his shame for having killed him mm-hmm. in the first place. Oh, and Jake doesn't let him forget it. Ever. Fuck no. No. Would you? <laughs> no, absolutely not. And I think it's what makes Roland the most interesting character in, in the book series is that he does. He just has such a radical shift, but he has always questioned, am I really doing the right thing? I know that the tower is my quest, but is it the right thing to do? Is it, and am I doing it the right way? Am I going about it the right way? And if you were to ask Roland to articulate, morally speaking, why what he does is right, he wouldn't be able to articulate it. No. He's not like Eddie and Susanna, who can 
in particular Eddie, but also Susanna, who could make arguments for why doing what's right is right or doing what's wrong is wrong. Right? I mean, even Jake's able to do that. He's not like Jake who can sense in someone's mind their guilts and their passions and their strengths and their weaknesses. Well, no, because it was beat out of them by court back in, you know, when they were training. There are two things that King comes back to that make up Roland, his intuition and his imagination, his, pragma- his pragmaticness and his romanticness. And neither of those things can he really truly understand exactly what he's doing or why. He... He fights to save the Kala, but it makes him sick and it makes him further from the tower. He wants to help Susanna, but he lies and deceives her. Maybe that's what the distraction is that I was talking about earlier then. That the battle is a literal distraction from the tower. That it's something he has to do because it's right. It is right. We're saving people. We are fucking knights. This is what we do. Why did we learn how to, how to fight like this if not to save and further life? But ultimately, it pulls him away from the tower. So maybe that, I mean, that feels like what I was trying to articulate earlier. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, no, no, and I'm totally with you. No, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, you're, you're right, because if the violence makes him further away from the tower, if it makes him sick every time that he does it, and I think part of what makes him sick is how much he loves it. No, absolutely. And at the end of the day, you're right. It does get him a little further from the tower. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, and Roland knows this too, the violence only ends one way, with everyone dead but him. It's always. And that's how it ends. And he feels that. He senses that. The dark foreboding over his heart. We can hope that this story has a happy ending, you know, but at this point right now, things are bleak. This is one of the darkest endings of all of the books. Oh, well, this is definitely where the shift happens. We're in the third act. We're in the third act of, of this grand story. You know, we've, we've learned about the characters. We've had a lot of inciting incidents. We've had our climax. And now we're, we're, we're coming to the end. You and I were talking about this before. Kind of sheepishly and a little sadly, like we're we're getting to the end of the series, and this is the book where you know where we're 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 moving downhill now. Things are getting dark. Things are getting real. Things are getting scary very quickly. Yeah, we shit's sum- shit's getting real, Derek. If we sum up the end, Jake loses his one and only actual child friend by explosion, by golden snitch explosion. I mean, the only thing, the only time that we get to see Jake be a kid, that gets ripped from him too. Eddie's wife steals, their mysterious other Mia steals Black 13 and disappears, mm-hmm. closing the door. Per Callahan realizes that he's a story in a book. His entire life has been written down in another novel. And is he free? Does he have, has he ever made a choice ever? Is he just part of this sick game? And Roland looks, maybe I can open this door. Mm-hmm. And we end. Yeah. What should be their moment of triumph is a dark moment. This should be where they are all jubilant. They have successfully defended the town against the wolves, against overwhelming odds. Their skill and cunning prevails. Well, and it ends with this. Cotet fundamentally fractured. And I'll tell you, I think it's an interesting choice because 
in a lot of the things that the tales that you and I share that we really love in fantasy fiction, you know, at the end of battles, everyone's roused and everyone's drinking and everyone's feeling wonderful. Would, would that be how it is? I mean, especially a lot of people were killed. Children were fucking, they, they exploded. A woman's head was cut off. I mean, people lost their loved ones. And this is a small Kala. I don't envision this being more than like 100 people, 150 people. Like, I, I think this is like a village. Well, the Kala, I think he gives the population at 1,000 at one point. Oh, okay. Wow, wow. It's I think, I think at one point, okay, like, so there, there's like a, but anyway, I get your still, point. You know, That's not a I, lot of people. And I wonder sometimes, like, you know, Stephen King is not about a happy ending. And I, and I do think it's really interesting to keep you hanging on at the end with this feeling like, oh, shit's getting, I mean, shit's gotten real now. Well, historically, at the end of battles and wars, the uh, victory, the side that wins typically does celebrate. That's, sure. That is a fair, like a human phenomenon. For example, a Roman triumph is after the Romans win a war. They hold a triumphant parade. The entire city mm -hmm. celebrates. We've seen the photographs um, from the victory in Europe uh, parties in in New York, and in particular in Manhattan, when oh, the soldier kisses the yeah. the woman, there is always a sense of yes, the sacrifice was worth it because we won, and the town is going through that sacrifice. And King even mentions the town is celebrating, except for those who lost people. Well, and that's why I think, and I think the Cotshead continues to lose people, which is why I don't think they're celebrating because this is just it's just a leg on the journey. Like yep. we're gonna have to do this again. And again, and again, until we get to this fucking tower. And at this point, their odds of doing everything that they planned after this battle are demonstrably harder. They need a Black 13 to open the door. Yeah, and time's moving much faster. I mean, they, they, they have a small window between universes to get this done. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, at this point now, I, I don't know if they're going to get it done. As the reader, I mean, we know what happens, obviously, but... As the reader right now, if we're sticking true to not thinking ahead at all, it, things are not good. I'm starting to question whether the tower is fucking worth it, dude. Well, I'll say this. The, this book ends ambiguously in a dark place where one of the crucial members of the team, Susanna, has been possessed by this <sighs> other named Mia. Right. And is gone. The very thing they need to utilize the door is gone. And, you know, Roland thinks he can get the door to open, but we now know that, mm. that Per Callahan's life is a story. Mm -hmm. And in, and in part, you can read, ah, my life is just a story. It's not real. There's a level of sadness over this victory. Uh, Eddie is obviously losing his mind because his wife has disappeared. Jake is stricken mm -hmm. with guilt and with grief over the death of his one and only friend. Well, it's also interesting. We talked earlier, like Callahan brings, brings that thought back around that like, I'm not original. Nothing is original. There is no original thought. There's no original idea that everything comes from something that these stories we've been telling forever, that I'm just another cog in the fucking wheel. But I'll tell you one thing I don't doubt in this read-through, or that I'd never doubted in any of the read-throughs, it's that Roland gets there. And I feel mm -hmm. very much that at the end of the day, 
Roland is going to be able to carry out this quest. Oh yeah, no, I completely agree. I I know in my heart that Roland gets to the tower. I'm questioning in my heart whether it's right and whether it's worth it at this point. You know what? Hold on to that thought mm -hmm. because at the end, I think we should revisit that. I yeah. think you should jot that down. And I, I think, in other words, I think we're starting to ask ourselves a very fundamental question. What was the fucking point? And I mean, I, that is, that, that I, is a question I continually come back to. I do think we should ask that. Why at the end does of this. Roland fucking do this? What is the, why would you commit thousands of years of reality and different realities? Why? There's gotta be a reason. I, I and truthfully, I don't know if we're really ever going to find out, but I wrote it down. You heard the click of the pen. I wrote it down and I do think we should talk about it at the very end. Yeah. That might even be like a, and its own episode. Yeah. I do think we should do a roundup at the very end. Um, one other thing I just think was just a great touch that I have to give King credit for. The cave of voices, the cave of the door mm. that you walk in and that the cave psychically hits your anxieties mm -hmm. and throws them right back out you. All the voices. That was just a fucking ingenious idea. And the fact that they're, that they're strong enough to withstand it. Like somebody like me, that would crush me. Oh, yeah. Hearing like my grandfather tell me that I suck and be like, that's my grandfather. I right. don't suck. And it's like, you know, now, but but Eddie and Jake, they, they've, they've built an armor. They've become tough enough mentally, physically, emotionally to, to realize that, that's, that's not real. That's not real. Yep. I don't have to succumb to that anymore. It's just a dark spell over this cave. But it's just an interesting layer of ambiance that he puts to the door. And that the door sits on a cave that if you go too far, you fall into the cave and you would be trapped there. Right. And presumably part of the voices. It's this idea that I think King plays with. We see this also in the um, mansion where Jake goes through, mm -hmm. that there are spots, physical places that have this spiritual degeneration. The idea that these are the places that are haunted, that are have ghosts in them. Mm -hmm. In the way that there are places that have spiritual regeneration, the way that churches or the Cala. The lot. The lot. In New York. We mentioned that there one guy who walks by the lot before we did the podcast, we mentioned this, who has acne. And then mm -hmm. he stops by and he really likes the lot. He doesn't know why. And his acne is cured. <laughs> Just the simple thing. Acne is a very, that's not a dangerous or no. deadly, but it's a skin disease uh, uh, that this lot was able to cure so that there are these places that can purify and regenerate the soul. There are also these places, you know, like on the polar opposite that can degenerate, mm -hmm. deteriorate the soul. And that this cave is one of those. Right. Right. It's brilliant. Yeah, man. So we are along the path of the beam. <sighs> I um, we have two books left before we are done. Let us know what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at the midnight myth. Go to our Facebook. Yeah. We just midnight dove right into it. Yeah. Really? I, I'm just so excited. Yeah, we were, we um, were, you know, hit us up on our website, www.midnightmyth.com. There's a ton of really cool wheel of Ka merch there that my lovely wife, Laurel has put together. Mm. Go out, buy it, tweet us a picture, Instagram us a picture of it if you want to easy mention on the, the pod. Um, Song of Susanna. Song of Susanna it's is, a coming. is next. 
Um, we'll see if that goes. I don't know if that's going to be a one or two parter yet because I can't remember how big that book is right. or isn't. Right. Um, but we're going to dive right into that and keep going next month. We'll have a Song of Susanna episode. Do you know what I lo- just love to say? Just as a lo- This has nothing to do with the Dark Tower. I wish that our listeners could see us record because I'm constantly the Italian that I am. My hands are always making this like motion towards Derek as if I'm as if I'm trying to will you to believe what I'm saying, you know, but no one can see it. <laughs> I don't know. I thought that. Was, I just thought that. I love peeling back the curtain of what yeah. it's like in the podcast studio, Steve. I love it. We know we're enjoying a dark stout on a cold night, and my arms are moving. That's and, just you know the content killed a whole bunch of those motherfucking wolves. Oh, that they did. Right. It was a great book. It really was a great book. I'm looking forward to the next one. I'm looking forward to the next one. I we are close to the end. Two left. I think by when we get close to the end, some of the thoughts Steve and I have been having just in the interest of transparency is that it might be fun to do another Stephen King related podcast mm-hmm. or Stephen King related book on the Wheel of Cod podcast. Mm-hmm. One particular that you know relates to the tower. So if anyone out there listening wants to have an idea, say, yeah. could you talk about this book? Hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. if you're even interested in that. If that's something that you're interested in and think it's a good idea, let us know. Yep. And uh, long days and pleasant nights. Long days and pleasant nights. 